Welcome to Bite-Size Battles. As General Douglas MacArthur sped through the waves of Manila Bay on the night of the 11th of March 1942, he vowed to himself he would be back. He was escaping the Philippines as the Imperial Japanese Army swept irresistibly towards the last doomed American and Filipino defenders. He made public his vow to return when he arrived on the friendly shores of Australia, and he fulfilled it two and a half years later when he waded onto the Filipino island of Leyte with his liberating troops. But in the meantime, the Philippines endured the brutality of the Imperial Japanese Army. The Japanese propaganda line, Asia for Asiatics, fell on deaf ears in the face of widespread atrocities meted out on the civilian population. That reality led many civilians and former soldiers to band together in resistance, much as populations right across Europe and Asia did in the face of the crushing ideologies of Nazi Germany and Imperial Japan. These created tales that need telling, and while some of them are already famous, I want to bring you some of those that are lesser known, but equally gripping. Much as you'd imagine from World War II, these stories are full of horror and heroism, catastrophe and courage, tragedy and triumph. From daring rescues to audacious assassinations, and everyday people risking death by hiding Jews from Nazi hunters, to young men and women blowing up bridges and laying ambushes. So get ready for an emotional roller coaster in this, the final episode of the Bite Size Battles Secret Warfare series The Resistance of World War II. One of the most successful of the Filipino resistance groups were the Hunters ROTC, Reserve Officers Training Corps. They were named after the military academy in Manila, where the students spontaneously refused to go home when they were ordered to, and instead formed the Hunters. They were young, only partially trained and chronically undersupplied, but they made up for all that with an unassailable spirit and a fierce determination to rid their country of the Japanese. That determination was fuelled by Japanese barbarity, including the sexual slavery of young women, the random torture of civilians and summary executions. Indicative of the wanton cruelty of the Japanese was the Manila Massacre towards the end of the war, in which at least a 100,000 civilians were burned alive, killed with swords, thrown into pits with grenades, bayoneted and much more. The hunters and several other Filipino resistance groups fought back. First, they raided one of the main Japanese armories in Manila, from which they looted all kinds of weaponry and ammunition. They then became experts in hit-and-run attacks and in raiding Japanese outposts, bases and other facilities. In one of the most stunning victories, the hunters rescued Filipino and American survivors of the infamous Bataan Death March. Just two months after MacArthur's escape from the Philippines, the remaining Allied forces surrendered, including 12,000 Americans. It remains the largest ever American surrender. 
They and 66,000 Filipinos were then force-marched up to 70 miles with next to no food, water or rest. There are several casualty estimates, but over the five-day march and shortly after arriving at their POW camps, it seems likely that around 20,000 Filipinos and 1,600 Americans died. The heat and the lack of food and water caused many to simply drop dead, and those who started to struggle were ruthlessly bayoneted. Others were arbitrarily beaten, kicked and executed. At two internment camps, Los Banos and Cabantuan, hunters' guerrillas staged intrepid rescue missions alongside regular US forces in 1945. They took guards by stealth under the cover of night, eliminated machine gun nests, and provided defensive cover while the US Army then rounded up the internees for evacuation. One of the main weapons the Filipino guerrillas used was a screamer, the Filipino martial art. Using rods, knives and unarmed joint locks and grapples, individual escrimidors and grandmasters often battled several Japanese in hand-to-hand -hand combat at once. In one such story, a famed escrimidor named Teodoro Saavedra visited a town just as a Japanese convoy was attacked by other guerrillas. In the ensuing reprisals against civilians, Saavedra was captured at gunpoint trying to defend them. As he was later being tortured, Saavedra managed to free himself and then simultaneously fought four sword-wielding Japanese with nothing but his bare hands. And he was winning. A grandmaster, Crispulo Atillo, said of the fight, Saavedra was so fierce they had to shoot him to death to prevent the death of their poorly trained soldiers. Japanese cruelty and the desire for independence also sparked resistance movements in the Dutch East Indies, now Indonesia. In what's known as the Pontianak incidents, the Japanese rounded up Chinese, Malays, Javanese and several other ethnic groups in Indonesia and massacred them. One of these groups were the Dayaks, and this atrocity, combined with other abuses, caused the Dayaks to rise up against what they had originally considered liberators from the Dutch. In the Dayak Desa War, tribal villages rose up as the message of the so-called Red Bowl symbol of war was passed between them. They managed to kill the local Japanese and slaughter a large retaliation force sent to crush them. The Dayaks managed to keep the Japanese army at bay right up to the end of the war, when frustratingly, as late as July 1945, the Imperial Japanese army managed to break their resistance, sweeping into their main centre at Melanau. The Dayak chief, Pang Suma, was killed in the fight alongside his men, and is still considered a national hero in Indonesia today. On the other side of the world, many other people were fighting for liberty, and often simple human decency. The Ulma family is a tale which is simultaneously heartbreaking and a beacon of humanity's inherent goodness. As the Nazi Germans swept through Poland and then into Soviet Russia from the summer of 1941, 
it suddenly left the Jews of that region at huge risk of the Nazi death machine. Desperately looking for a place to hide were the Souls, a Jewish family of six. They must have breathed a sigh of relief when Joseph and Victoria Alma welcomed them into their home. The Almas were sincere Catholics with six children. They would resist the evil of Nazi anti-Semitism by shielding the souls as best they could. They immediately hid the Jewish family and two other Jewish children in the attic of their home, despite knowing the terrifying risks. Hiding Jews was punishable by death. The financial strain was immense too, as Joseph found it increasingly difficult to support 16 mouths. So, the Almas found the souls work too to ensure they didn't all starve, especially now that Victoria Alma was pregnant with their seventh child. But this incredible arrangement led eventually to barely imaginable disaster. The Almas were denounced by a man wanting to take possession of the soul's property and so wanted them gone. After two years in hiding, a patrol of German police arrived at the Alma house and surrounded it. They discovered the souls and the two other Jewish children and forced them all outside, along with Joseph, pregnant Victoria and their children. Every single one was shot. I find it difficult to tell this story and when I read it, I didn't even know if I should include it in this podcast whether it was too much to hear. But I decided that their sacrifice deserves to be told and heard. The Almas are heroes, possibly the most courageous I've ever come across. Their resistance wasn't in combat or the daring adventures of partisans, but in the resistance of the human spirit against unfathomable evil. They and their children gave their lives for that resistance. And it should serve as inspiration for all who ever face the persecution of their neighbours. As Edmund Burke said, the only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men to do nothing. And another group of good men and women who did the very opposite of nothing are the Bielski partisans. They have been immortalised in the Daniel Craig film Defiance and were one of the most renowned resistance movements of the entire war. Jews themselves, they also stand out for prioritising the rescuing of Jews over the killing of Germans. The group lived nomadically in several Belorussian forests before finally setting up a permanent camp in the Nolibokka forest surrounded by near impenetrable swamp. From here, the roughly 300 partisans regularly infiltrated ghettos, rescuing Jews and bringing them back to camp. And in spite of the shortage of food and difficult living conditions, one member of the camp said, Compared to the ghettos, it felt like heaven. In the woods we were free, that's all I can tell you. We had freedom. Another said, it seemed like a fantasy from another world. A kind of gay abandon filled the air. Biting, frank talk spiced with juicy curses 
galloping horses and the laughter of children. Suddenly, I felt like an extra in a Wild West movie. The Bielskis also worked with Soviet partisans in attacking railways, food stores and Nazi units. After his first battle with the Germans, one of the leaders of the Bielski partisans, Tuvia, said, It was satisfying in a larger sense, a real spiritual high point, that the world should know that there were still Jews alive, and especially Jewish partisans. In June 1944, their areas were liberated by the oncoming Soviet armada, and they survived the war along with the 1,230 Jews they had rescued, 70% of which were women, children and the elderly. One of the first acts of resistance in occupied Europe was also one of its most iconic. On a warm night in Athens on the 30th of May 1941, two young civilians set out on a mission which they knew could end with their torture and deaths. Manolis Glizos and Apostolos Santas were just 18 and 19 years old, but they couldn't stand the sight of the ancient Acropolis because three days earlier, the Germans had raised a huge swastika flag over it when they had taken Greece's capital. So, creeping quietly through a natural cave armed with only a torch and a pocket knife, they made their way to the flagpole, scaled it and tore the swastika down. When Athens awoke the next morning, the people celebrated quietly with furtive smiles as the Gestapo flooded the area looking for the perpetrators. As chance would have it, both Glizos and Santas were arrested, but the Germans didn't realise who they were and released them again. The daring Acropolis resistance caught the imagination of millions across Europe and inspired many to resist even at that early point in the war when the Nazis seemed unstoppable. In an interview in 2011, Glizos said, Hitler had said in a speech that Europe is free. We wanted to show him that the fight was just beginning. The German occupation, harsh everywhere, was one of the harshest in Greece. By the end of the war in Greece in June 1945, 300,000 Greeks had died of starvation alone. Another 70,000 were executed and 60,000 Greek Jews killed in death camps. The Sephardic population of Thessaloniki nearly vanished altogether, with 91% dying at the hands of Nazi murderers. All this savagery only increased the fire in Greek hearts to resist, to continue the fight that Santos and Glizos had started. The Greek resistance grew into one of the largest and most active anywhere in Europe. In 1942, Greek partisans and British special agents blew up the Gorgopotamus railway bridge, and then in 1943 came the astonishing battle of Fardi Kambos. The battle erupted when a convoy of Italian trucks was ambushed by partisans on the winding, narrow roads of rural Greece. The local Italian garrison rushed to their aid, only themselves to be ambushed and surrounded. As the fighting intensified, local civilians rushed to join the fight, and the roughly 650 Italians 
soon found themselves facing over 2,000 enraged Greeks. Three days of relentless attacks forced the Italians to finally surrender. They'd lost 96 men, but they also lost control of rural Greece. Two weeks later, Italian forces rescued the last remaining local garrison and then retreated, never to return. The Battle of Fardicambos marked the real flowering of the Greek resistance and the local town of Grevena was one of the first in Europe to be liberated by its own partisans. Italian control of rural Greece collapsed and this was still in March 1943. The Dutch resistance isn't often mentioned in the annals of World War II and it did take longer to gather pace than elsewhere. But gather pace it did and by 1942 it was in full swing. The Dutch resistance often targeted collaborators and one lady who took this very seriously was Hanny Shaft, known as the girl with the red hair. She was just 22 in 1942 and used her beauty and youthful charm to seduce known collaborators, luring them to quiet locations. Then, when she had them fully disarmed, she would shoot them. Shaft was, though, sadly captured when her partner Jan Bonekamp gave her up under torture in 1944. The SS arrested and tortured her too before Dutch Nazis took her out and shot her. She was later given a full state funeral which was attended by the Dutch royal family and she's remembered in Dutch services every year. Another remarkable Dutch resistance fighter was the founder and leader of the group CS6, Gerrit Kastein. He was a communist and abhorred Nazism and racism and of course none of that went down well with the Nazis meaning he was constantly hunted by the Gestapo and Dutch collaborators. Kastein was a good-looking and charismatic man whose heart told him he should resist, but was haunted by the German retribution his attacks sparked. In one, CS6 attacks the car of Hans Albin Rauter, an SS general and chief of the Nazi police. Rauter survived and responded by ordering the execution of 116 men from a small local village. Kastein and his group became known for silent assassinations, quietly knifing targets in crowds before slipping away or sniping them from afar. Kastein was eventually arrested but pulled a concealed pistol and shot the driver of the car he was being transported in. Mid-escape though, he was recaptured despite pulling another concealed weapon. This time there was no escape. He was taken to a prison, tied to a chair and promised a long torture unless he revealed the details of his entire CS6 network. Castine took a moment to consider before flinging himself through a second floor window still tied to a chair. He died with a fractured skull but his sacrifice enabled CS6 to continue operating, shocked the Nazis and inspired resistance groups to continue the fight. We'll finish with one of the most daring and successful resistance missions of the entire war. The assassination 
of Reinhard Heydrich. Heydrich was one of the primary architects of the Holocaust and the Einsatzgruppen death squads, which hunted down and murdered Jews in the wake of advancing German armies. He was, in short, a vile monster. In 1941 and 2, Heydrich was organising the deportation of Jews in Czechoslovakia, and the Czech government in London wanted him dead. Two Czechs were chosen for the operation, Joseph Gabčík and Jan Kubis, and they were dropped by parachute close to Prague. On the 27th of May 1942, as Heydrich drove to a meeting in his open-topped car, Gabčík and Kubis waited beside a hairpin bend. When the car slowed to take the turn, Gabčík stepped out with a Sten machine gun, but it jammed. Heydrich got out to confront Gabčík rather than speed away, and now Kubis took his chance. He emerged from hiding and threw a modified anti-tank mine at the car, which ripped through it. Shards of metal soared into Heydrich, causing major injuries to his diaphragm and lungs, and killing him six days later. Reinhard Heydrich, the man responsible for so much of the Nazi Holocaust, was dead. These are just a few of the many thousands of stories of the irrepressible resistance to the murderous totalitarian regimes of World War II. Together they make a mosaic which, when viewed as a whole, is at once both gut-wrenchingly poignant and soaringly triumphant. Despite the horrors inflicted, these stories tell us that people are willing to risk everything in the name of freedom, human decency and the protection of others. It forces us to ask the question, if it were to happen now, what would I risk? What would you? Many lived through their acts of resistance, and many, of course, did not. But the courage, the daring, the resilience, the audacity to resist in the face of overwhelming odds causes me to celebrate and cherish every single one of those heroic men and women. And live or die, they all won, simply by making a stand. As Manolos Glizos, the teenager who tore down the swastika flying above the Acropolis, said, No struggle for what you believe in is ever futile. For the last time in this series of Secret Warfare, Spies, Special Forces and Resistance. I'm Andrew McKenzie. Thank you for listening.